Hey, I want to welcome you here to Providencia, West Palm Beach. My name is Keith Case, and I'm a pastor here. Um, the scripture tonight is from Matthew chapter 22, and um, there's these red pew Bibles that you might want to just follow along because I'm going to be referencing some other texts, and you might want to just see um, some of those other scriptures. So they, they have them there in the pew if you want to grab it, but it's also the scripture uh, that we're going to be reading uh, the main text is up on the screen here. And this is from the NIV, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And this ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Um. I want to welcome you all here tonight. We are in a series all year called Rooted. And what does it mean to be rooted in our city? What does it mean to be rooted in your story? What does it mean to be rooted in His grace? And I know that my wife, uh, she told me that she shared this week in her story group. And it kind of ties all these things together. But my wife grew up as a missionary kid overseas. Uh, she left the, the States at five and went to live in Costa Rica for a year and then left Costa Rica and went to Mexico City and lived in Mexico City from six to 18. But she would like jump around houses there and she would come back every three years because her parents had to fundraise uh, for furlough. And then uh, her family moved to New York City and she was in college and then we moved to Orlando and then we moved to Miami and we lived in like six different condos in Miami and then we moved to Palm Beach Gardens and then we moved to Abacoa and now we live down by uh, South uh, Element, South Side, or not South Side, uh, by South Olive Elementary School. It's the first time we've ever owned a house. We've been there for three and a half years and I think my wife said that somebody asked her, you know, at Story Group, when you bought your house, was that a big deal? Was that a big deal for you, kind of settling? And she was like, well, maybe. But the big deal was when Keith started planting trees. That's when it hit her. Because the trees I was planting were like this small. And she was like, well, why are we going to buy trees this small if we're not going to see them grow this big? And so through Story Group, my wife was processing this reality of actually planting something here in our yard has helped her to become more rooted in our city. It's helped her to become more rooted in her own story. And it's helped her to become more rooted in the grace of God. It's pretty wild how all those things uh, kind of tie together. And, and we are actually in a season right now called Lent, which really is about being rooted. There are some in the religious community who like to live way up here, right? They're like way up here. If you go to their worship service, it's all up here. It's all joy. It's all praise. It's all, oh my God, my hands won't stop moving. I'm feeling it. All right. It's all up here, all right? And there's other people, you go to their worship service, and it's just all like this. It's 
the worst, most dead thing you've ever experienced in your life. Like, how do people do this every week? They come here every week. And Lent says two things. One, Lent brings the people that are up here. It's an invitation back down to planet Earth. And it also brings the dead who are down below the Earth up out of the ground. It invites all of us to be rooted in the soil, to be rooted in the Earth, to be rooted in God's creation, and to be rooted in who God is. And this month... In particular, we were talking about what does it mean to be rooted in wisdom. And last week we looked at how uh, wisdom really begins in humility. Wisdom really begins in humility, essentially meaning that I recognize the reality that God is God and I am not. That's kind of step one. But it goes beyond that, that I don't have to be God. He gets to be God. But it goes beyond that, and that is that He created me, that He's a creator, and He created me to create with Him as an artist, and that I get invited into doing that with Him, that I get invited into creating and building with Him, and you get to do that every single week in your work, that those of you who work here, which is every single person here, even if you're in school right now, you are working. You are co-laboring. You are creating with God. You are making something, and it's called a city. And as we talk about wisdom tonight, um, we're going to be diving into the book of Matthew. And in Matthew, this chapter that he's talking about right now, Jesus is toward the end of his ministry, and he's entering into Jerusalem to towards the last days before the passion begins. He's in the capital city of Israel. And he's there working, and he's there ministering, and he's there um, engaging with people, engaging with industries, engaging with neighborhoods there. And as he's doing that, he's also engaging with religious sects. Um, not sex. S-E-C-T-S. I have a little sore on my tongue right now, so it's hard for me to pronounce all the way. I have a, a slight lisp. But religious sex sounds pretty interesting too, right? But um, no, he was not engaged in that, um, but he was engaged in these organizations that were almost like uh, political. They were very social, and they were both fighting and both arguing. In fact, if you bring up the slide from Confession, I know it's back there a ways. It may take you a second to find it. But if you bring back the slide from Confession that we sang together, or we said together and read from Psalm 42, as a, the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? When can I go and meet with God? See, part of the history of Israel is that the place that housed God, the temple, had been destroyed, and the people had been taken off into exile, and now they've come back, and debate has happened because another temple is there, but has it been built by the pure hands? Has it been built by the people, the true people of Israel, or is it an illegitimate temple? 
And people are crying out going, man, when can I worship God again? And they're debating and they're wondering, how can we get our land back? How can we get our capital city back? How can we bring true peace to our city? How can we see shalom here? Because at this time, Rome is occupying. Rome is occupying the city. So they're debating. It's like election season all the time. By the way, we have election it's coming up this Tuesday for our local mayor. Encourage you, if you have not uh, registered, to register to vote. Uh, we prayed for all of you here at 415. Um, thank you, Flo's and Sarah Claire, for leading us in that time. But we need to seek God's wisdom here in our city. We're going to see how it applies here uh, to this text tonight. See, Jerusalem was the city of wisdom for the people of Israel. I mean, that's where God was. And God was the maker of all things. If you think back even to Solomon, right? King Solomon, that's where the king was. You would go there. People would travel from all over the world to Jerusalem to spend time with King Solomon to gain his wisdom. Jerusalem was a city of wisdom. And people went there to try to get wisdom whether that meant industrial understanding or that meant how everything worked together for the good wisdom. They were seeking wisdom. I want to ask you tonight uh, just to imagine for a second. Um, this, there's no right or wrong answer here. So just imagine if there were a, a city here on planet Earth right now called the City of Wisdom. And it really was. Like, it was a city of wisdom. And you could go there. And, God, and may, God was there. All right? So just imagine. You could go to the city. Maybe you need to close your eyes to help you imagine it. But what would it look like? What would a city of wisdom look like? Next question. What would a city of wisdom smell like? What would it smell like there? What would a city of wisdom sound like? How would you feel when you came into the city of wisdom? Would you have to pay or would it be free? The city of wisdom. Matthew takes us into that city, to the city of Jerusalem. And the first line of this chapter is so poetic. Now, I was thinking tonight as we were worshiping how much art is a part of our worship. Have you ever noticed that? How much art is a part of our worship? I mean, everything we've been doing here tonight, music, poetry, songs, so much art. There's an aesthetic even to the space. And Matthew sets it all up with this line of poetry, essentially saying, hearing that Jesus, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees get together and start talking. Like all in one line, Matthew, like boom, you know? Like Jesus hearing 
silence. Hearing that they had been silenced, the Pharisees hearing that, they get together and start talking about what they're going to do with Jesus. In verse 34, when it says that the Sadducees are silenced, who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees are like the upper tier religious group. They are kind of uppity, kind of, um, you know, the higher elite social class. They were more Hellenized, meaning they were like more connected to culture, kind of more pro um, Greek, pro-Greek culture, and, and they were engaged more with society, and uh, they re- represented the highest class in, in Judean society. And maybe, maybe some religious people come to mind as you think about uh, this group. And in the previous chapter, this is why I wanted to get you to get your Bible out, in the previous chapter, you see marriage at the resurrection, verses 23 to uh, 33 there. And they've come to Jesus, and they've asked Jesus this question. See, the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And there's a whole history there. But to put it really simply, when you're living the sweet life here and now, why do you need to live it in the afterlife? When heaven is here and now, when you got the sweet life right here and right now, why do you need it to last beyond this? So the Sadducees were not a people who believed in the resurrection, so they get together and they want to test Jesus, and they ask Jesus this question. They say, Jesus, if a woman loses her husband, he dies, and he has a brother, and that brother marries that woman, which was a part of the law, it was an act of mercy, so that a widow and her children that would be considered orphans uh, are not left unprotected and unprovided for. It's an act of mercy through God's law. But if she married the first brother, and then he died and she married a second, then he died and she married a third, who's, who would she be married to in, the, in heaven? Who would she be? Who would her husband be? So notice what the Sadducees are doing. They're taking a law that was supposed to be about mercy, and they're turning it against God against Jesus, and they're trying to trick him and test him about something that they even themselves didn't believe in. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, well, there actually isn't going to be marriage in heaven. We're going to be more like the angels. By the way, Sadducees didn't believe in angels. He said, we're going to be more like the angels. But then he really gets them. He says, you know how it is said that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yeah, well, that means that I'm the God of the living, not of the dead. And this is what Jesus was saying that was so radical to the Sadducees right there. Your forefathers aren't dead. They're alive right now. And they were silenced. See, the wisdom of God, when you encounter it, will silence you. That's one thing it'll do. But it'll also stir you. You see, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they were at war against each other, but they also had a common enemy. And Jesus was getting a lot of power 
in that day. He was getting some following. You know, there, there was people starting to follow this guy. Starting to get political here. They're starting to lose some of their political ground. So the Pharisees get together, and they actually believed in the resurrection. And they were not the upper class uh, religious sect. They were more like the commoner. But they were like the true religious people. You know, we really, we really stick to the Bible. We're really living it out every day. We know the true Torah. We know the true Word of God, and they prided themselves on this. In fact, the Scriptures are, are so important to them. This is where, um, where our, rab, our Rabbianic uh, ministry today that you see in the temple and synagogues was based out of, the Pharisees, was kind of born out of this sect. The Torah is so, so important. The law is so, so important. And they believed in the resurrection. So what was their issue? Jesus, I said again, Jesus is getting too much power. He could disrupt their societal position, their religious authority. And, and in many ways, they were people who prided themselves on their wisdom. We are the authorities of wisdom, so we will test this one. We will test this one who's getting too much power, and we're going to do it in a way, do it in a way that breaks him in front of everybody. So they thought up this question that they're going to go to him with. It was in 1963 he was set to fight... Uh, Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship of the world, and he came out with a comedy album. That's right. He came out with a comedy album, and he's, in fact, the first one on there, uh, the first uh, song or the first poem on the album is credited as a precursor to hip-hop, and it was called, I Am the Greatest. At that time, he was 21 years old. And he was still known as Cassius Clay. Let me read you what this 21-year-old boxer wrote. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. The fistic world was dull, was dull and weary. With a champ like Liston, things had to be dreary. Then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans running with cash. This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. This kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once... You're asleep for the night. And as you lie on the floor while the ref counts ten, you pray that you won't have to fight me again. For I am the man this poem is about, the next champ of the world there isn't a doubt. If Cassius says a cow can lay an egg, don't ask how, grease that skillet. He is the greatest. When I say two, there's never a third. Betting against me is completely absurd. When Cassius says a mouse can outrun a horse, don't ask how, 
Put your money where your mouth is. I am the greatest. Now, what in the world went through this guy's mind to think, I'm getting ready to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world against Sonny Liston, and I'm going to come out with a comedy album. And I'm, my first like poem in the whole thing is going to be called, I Am the Greatest. I mean, if you haven't heard, because some of y'all may not even know who Muhammad Ali is, uh, if you haven't heard this guy speak and the poetry that he wrote, it is hilarious. But it is also like, what? Like, wow. Like, how did this guy come up with this and how did he say these things? Like, oh my gosh. But Muhammad Ali was also smart. He was trying to create hype around his fights. Why? Because he wanted more money invested in the sport of boxing. Why? Because if more people invested their money, their time, their energy, if he was able to get more attention around the sport of boxing, that meant more money was going to come his way. He was thinking like a businessman. He was wanting people to really get into this. He wanted people to invest in his sport and invest in him because he was declaring, I'm the winner, before he even fought. In some ways, as we think about what is the purpose of life, what am I doing here? The question that we're really asking is, where am I going to invest Where am I going to put my money? Where am I going to put my energy? Where in the end, I am a winner. That's the question. When when we're, we're thinking about purpose, when we're thinking about where am I going to invest? And this is really the question that the Pharisees are bringing to Jesus. It's this one person among the Pharisees that says that he was an expert in the law. That means he studied the Torah like backwards and forwards, the first five books of the Bible. He studied the commandments. And he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, which one is the greatest? Which one is the greatest? See, there's 613 commandments in the law of Moses. And he's asking him, which one is the greatest? Remember Jesus' followers? They actually asked Jesus a question about themselves personally, and they asked him, who's going to be the, remember that, greatest? They wanted to know if, if they were going to be the greatest or if this person was going to be the greatest. This question, who is the greatest? Which one is the greatest? Because they want to be right They want to pat themselves on the back. They want to be excited and hopeful about their future. See, if you're investing in the greatest way, or if you already know you're on the path to being the greatest, it gives you hope. I'm doing it. Life is going to be good for me. But see, the wisdom of God does not lead you to the top of the world. The wisdom of God ends up testing you. See, they came to test Jesus, but in the end, Jesus tests them. 
In our neighborhood, uh, which many of you know a lot about because I talk about it in here, um, we have, it's the funniest thing, just in our little corner of the world, we live in a corner house. We have the people that own the Chinese restaurant uh, at, over in the Winn-Dixie Plaza. Their workers live in this house next to us. Lots of people live there. Um, Next to them, there's a lot of people living in that house from multiple different places. Uh, Across the street from us, a guy, uh, a Cuban-American guy bought that house, and he's going to redo it for his sister who lives like two blocks away. He listens to his um, phone very loud in his car. So when he's talking to people in his car with the doors closed across the street, I can hear him talking to his friends on his phone in his car with the doors closed, windows up. And he always talks about money. He's like, he's like, hey, bro, I'm all about the money, all about the money. Next, directly next to us is our neighbors uh, who is uh, French, and he is a retired chef, and um, his girlfriend... Uh, fell out of a hotel and has the syndrome where you can't remember yesterday. You have short-term memory. So every time she sees me, she usually cusses me out and asks me what I'm doing in her neighborhood. And then afterwards, I tell her who I am, that I live right there, and she apologizes, and she tells me the whole story over again. It's very bizarre. I'm telling you, we have the most colorful little block right there. And then directly across... Uh, you have to know that I have deep, deep love uh, for Puerto Rico. In fact, we're trying to go there this summer. Tons of friends from Puerto Rico. But we have this Puerto Rican family, and um, the older grandparents, or the parents, started getting really sick, and, and their son um, is basically addicted to opiates. And to pay for his addiction, he began to bring people in off the street and rent rooms out in the house especially when his parents would leave town, which they left about a month ago. So the house was getting hot, people. And everybody in this city who's in like any type of criminal uh, role or any type of like commissioner or mayor role, like people know the house across the street from me. It's famous. I was with the chief of police the other day and she was like, where do you live? I was like, Lee Road. She's like, oh, I know the house right on your street there. I was like, oh, really? Yeah. The city commissioner sends me emails about the house. Everybody on our street hates the house. Um, we've tried to navigate how do we love, how do we be friends with people in our street, in our neighborhood. I'm telling you, it is very complicated. It is not easy. But I always told their son that if he ever wanted to get into rehab, if he ever wanted to get out of town, come see me. We would try to get him into rehab. Um, If he wanted to go back to Puerto Rico, we'd buy him a plane ticket. So he came to me on Monday, my day off. I'm working in the yard. He's got his hand wrapped in his shirt, and it's bleeding. And I know there's probably like 10 people in the house. And he's like, I mean, I'm telling you people, ambulances come there like once every other week for ODs. Probably two people have died in the house. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. He comes to me, arm wrapped. 
He's like, Keith, get me out of here. I just, I want to go to Puerto Rico. Can you please get me out of here? When do you want to go? So I buy him a ticket on Spirit Airlines. He flies out Wednesday. Thursday, cops are there. They clean everybody out of the house. Big ordeal. Everybody's getting kicked out of the house because there's no owner there. So everybody's gone. And, um, and they're not happy. People are really upset. They're mad. They're yelling things. If I'm outside, they're kind of like saying it over their shoulder, ah, rah, rah, like yelling at me kind of thing. And then the uh, code enforcement guy showed up because he's the one who has to put this sign on the house, the front door. He's going to be the one who eventually like boards the house up if that's what it comes to. Code enforcement guy's there and... Uh, Gina was there hanging out with my wife, uh, somebody who goes to our church. She has a PBA sticker on her Jeep. And the guy says to me, oh, you're, you're a teacher at PBA. He thought that was my car. I was like, well, I, I've, I've taught some classes there, here and there, like kind of covering for people. And he goes, oh, man, I, I love that school. You know, I, I graduated from there. I was like, oh, yeah, really? He's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, he's like, yeah, there's this professor there, um, uh, you know, Dr. Wright. You know that guy? It's like, Gerald Wright? Yeah, yeah, I know Gerald Wright. He's like, oh, man. He's like, that guy. That guy's something, man. He's like, you know, there's a lot of good teachers there, but I would sit in that guy's class, and it was just like you could just feel something like this love or something from this guy. And he's like, and I'll never forget, never forget what he said. He would always say, is it that, that our faith is really measured by how we love the poor? Now, maybe you, you're not getting it, but for me, I'm sitting there. I, I just helped this guy fly home, but in the process of flying him home, now all these people have been kicked out of this house. These people are going back to the streets. And when he said that to me, I'm like looking at the house. And I'm going, did I really love these guys? I'm like, WWGW, what would Gerald Wright do? Um, like, if Gerald would have been their neighbors, how differently would this have been? You know, a lot of times when things are going on like that in my neighborhood, I just want to get rid of it. I think, I think of the situation in our city with the poor or with homeless people downtown. It's like all over Engage uh, West Palm Beach if you're on that Facebook page. Or, it's the big issue. What do you do about the homeless people? And there's this part of me in these really dark places in these little corners and, and closets. Because can't we just like just move those people somewhere else? See, it's easy in verse 37 when they say, when Jesus says to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And for the Pharisees, I just imagine that maybe their hearts were cold like mine. Maybe their souls felt dead a bit. And maybe their minds felt strained, trying to make sense 
of life. See, while the Sadducees may have been living in the big house, the Pharisees were living in their heads. And when Jesus confronts them with this idea of the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, it wasn't just a commandment, it was actually a prayer. It was a prayer that they were called to pray every single day. In verse 39 is where he takes it home. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This guy named Luke Bobo, he's an um, African-American guy, and um, we're getting acquainted and, and through some different networks. And some of you may have heard, seen on radio, the, po- the podcast, the 14-part series. Uh, they have a 14-part series on there called Seeing White. And this quote came from that, and, and, and you, you may have heard it before, but that's, that's how I heard it. It's talking about racism, and it, it's saying in, in the South, um, whites did not mind living in close proximity to blacks, but they did try to squash upward mobility or advancement professionally, socially, economically, etc. While whites in the North did not mind upward mobility or advancement, they did mind living in close proximity to blacks. What is it that they really are saying is that for both, they're terrified of getting close to their neighbor, of actually loving their neighbor. Because to love requires incredible vulnerability. See, Jesus would go on to actually be the fulfillment of what he is saying to the Pharisees. He will go on to be wisdom personified. See, he fulfills these commands in his arrest, in his day in court, at his execution, and at his resurrection. He loves God. He loves his neighbor as himself so much that he gives his life. Not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, but because he loves. And in verse 46, which is beyond the text we're reading tonight, but in the same chapter, Jesus goes on to say, to talk about being a descendant of, being the son of David, that he's not just the son of David, but he's also the Lord of David, that he's the God of David, that he's the God of that David is crying out to in that psalm, Psalm 42. And it says when he finished saying that, that the Pharisees were silenced. As we come to the table tonight for communion, there's a dream about a city of wisdom It actually is in, I believe, the book of Zechariah, where it says that the old people, the wise old people, will be standing on the street corners in the city, spitting their wisdom 
over the streets while the kids are playing in them, like in the city. Where is that city? May we be a part of building it here.